Hey guys, welcome to Fuck Small Talk. I'm your host, Mariah Joe, life and recovery coach. I have my master's in sociology and a few certifications in nutrition and behavioral health. I'm also a certified peer recovery specialist, which is a fancy way of saying I use my own experience with addiction and mental health to help others heal too. And I'm here to say fuck that, to fake fluffy talk for the sake of fitting in. You don't need to fit in, you belong. Let's dive into this week's big talk topic. Hello, everybody. I am sitting with Andrea Adult Child. Oh. Andrea Adult Child. <laughs> that is what I call you. Keep it. No, Andrea Ashley, um, you are the host of the Adult Child podcast and a very good friend of mine. And we found Andrea each other. Adult Child. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's how I, it's, I say it like that. So they know your name and then they also know how to find your podcast. Um, and yeah, I found you. I remember I was working billing insurance at my old job and I was so bored in a cubicle all day long listening to every episode ever. Um, and I reached out to you and was just like, this is phenomenal. I've never been so seen and heard like my own story coming through so many of your guests and just you at the same time. So I reached out and I was like, please don't stop. This is awesome. And then we just have been like connected ever since. And I just like text you whenever I want. And <laughs> you help me get this podcast rolling. And here we finally fucking are. I wonder when that was. Oh my God. I feel like you found me pretty early. I did. You had like almost no following on Instagram. And I don't even know if we either of us were on TikTok at that time. And things have really blown up for you. And I'm so freaking proud of you. You've been such an inspiration for me to start this podcast. And for the two years I've been just sitting on it. You're one of like my angels that sit on my shoulder going like, what are you waiting for? Come on, <laughs> just do Get it. it. I did the same thing. Yeah. June 4th. June 4th is when I reached out to you. Uh-huh. Over two years ago. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, I was early. But like, look at how much you've grown since then. Crazy. That's not first episode was March 31st, uh, 2021. That's crazy. Yeah. And I was only going to do like eight to 10 episodes. You just thought it was going to be like this short little, like, thing. I didn't know. I thought maybe it would be like a couple, like maybe like I do like seasons or something. I don't know. I didn't, well, I didn't know. I didn't know if it would take off, but yeah, I was just like, all right, I'll just do. Cause starting a never ending podcast sounded fucking scary. Yeah. I don't really know, I guess, what my intentions are here with Fuck Small Talk, but I am just here to talk until I guess I feel like I've said it all. <laughs> and that might be for never. <laughs> well, but I was just going to kind of do my story, like just kind of go through, do like certain episodes topically and like just go through my story because and then it just I just kept going. Yeah. I mean, because like it was received well. And I'm sure it felt good to just get finally just like. I know you just like sit in your closet and just kind of record those episodes. Oh my God, I'll never forget the first post. And it just, it, it, um, it hit home and it made me realize that like, I could probably do the scary thing too by starting my own podcast. Cause, um, that, that, uh, post that you made of you in your, in your, um, closet sitting cross-legged next to your cat box with Kiki. And you're like, this is how I record my podcast. And I'm like, Hey, I could probably do that. <laughs> Yeah. And I sat on the floor for like a year and a half. Yeah. I'm so <laughs> I'm so I didn't need you. to. I didn't need to sit on. I'd, I would like be hunched over and I'll be so uncomfortable. And like, I didn't need to sit on the floor. I could figure something else out. Oh my God. You're like, this I is fine. I have a chair now, but I'm still in the closet when I record my parts. 
Hey, I'm in a closet too right now. It's okay. Um, but okay, so I want to introduce you a little bit. Um, obviously, you identify with the label adult child. Um, you also identify with the label uh, recovering shit show. Yes. Is this right? Yes. Yes, this is true. Recovering alcoholic, recovering codependent. Yes. Recovering yeah, love, just... love addict, all the things. Yep. In recovery across the board. So I spent my first episode talking a little bit about recovery versus sobriety and all the different forms of recovery that there is and why. Um, this stigma of addiction is ridiculous and how we all kind of have a little bit of something uh, sprinkle, sprinkled like within our life, you know. And so my second episode talking about trauma and talking about how like what trauma is, what trauma isn't, what generational trauma means and how to start to work through some of that. Like I wanted to interview you really soon and I'm so glad you said yes. Um, you are now the first guest on my podcast. Because I want listeners to understand what is an adult child. Did you always have an inkling that it was something to do with like, you know, um, generational addiction? No, or... no idea. Well, no. So, you know, I was thinking about this. So I, I think I first heard the term when I was maybe like four years sober and I was, I, I started so I was like in therapy all through my teenage years, but then when I was four years sober and that's when my, like the relationship stuff was really getting bad for me and, um, starting to get bad. It was bad the whole time, but then it was like, okay, this is a problem. Like, this is something that, 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 that 12 steps in AA is not fixing, you know? Right. And, um, it was this real, it was a relationship where I was dating this guy and he lived at, he lived in New York, but he was in Florida for work. And, um, I had no, it was six months of pure hell. And I had no idea that what I was experiencing in that entire relationship was a trauma response. Like, I didn't know that like the like, hypervigilance, oh, yeah. you know, like, especially like the hypervigilance just like waiting for the other shoe to drop constantly looking for any signs that he was going to abandon me, which was a lot because he was super avoidant. I don't even think I knew like really what attachment theory was then either. And then the feeling like I was going to die, like when I wouldn't hear from him, like I didn't know that that was an emotional flashback. And I don't know if that's something that um, we're kind of going all over the place, but I think it would be important to talk about like what trauma looks like in dating. Oh, for sure. Um, so one would be like emotional dysregulation. This is how it showed up for me. So emotional dysregulation. So like my mood being dependent upon how I viewed the relationship was. Like if I thought that things were good, I was at a 10. If I didn't, I was at a zero. And it was like zero to 10, zero to 10. There was no like four, five, six, right? It was either yeah. I was like elated or I was going to fucking kill myself. Um, the second was like hypervigilance. So just like constantly scanning my environment for any signs that I'm about to be abandoned. Um, or, I mean, even in this relationship, I mean, I would, I used to call hotels cause there was a period of time where he was like living in, like he was renting a place, but then there was a period of time where he was living in hotels and I, he had a pattern of like coming to town without telling me. And I literally would just like call up hotels and ask, like, say his name to be like, oh, can you connect me to like so-and-so's room? And I would just call like 10 different hotels just to see if he was, he was there. Was he <laughs> ever at one when you called? No. Oh. 
Um, so did, then- did this stem from like, have you had like, a, um, like abusive or types of no, relationships? It's all from my childhood. <laughs> okay. You know, um, and no, but I have a pattern of dating, like emotionally unavailable or like active alcoholic men. Mm-hmm. He was emotionally unavailable and he was avoidant. Right. He was not abusive. Um, and then, uh, emotional flashbacks. So this is like where essentially what's happening here is like, we think about a, this is like a flashback. We think about PTSD. We think about flashbacks, except for the, there's no images associated with this. There's no like words associated with this. So like when we're kids and we go into a trauma response, right? Basically what happens is like the emotional part of our brain shuts down. So typically the way that you would process trauma is afterwards when, when the amygdala, when the amygdala comes, when everything balances back out, you would need to like, hopefully, and if parents or kids of people who are, have kids, it's like talking to your children after it so that they can make sense of things. But when we don't, we, we don't make sense of it. And so it's just like the emotional part is in there and we haven't like merged everything together. So something happens in our adulthood that reminds us of this unprocessed trauma from our childhood. And so then we have the same exact reaction that we had when we were kids. And so for me, it was related to my mom and separation anxiety, like literally feeling like I was going to die if I couldn't sleep in my mom's bed or literally feeling like I was going to die if um, I was at a sleepover. Yeah. And that's how I felt like if, if like a guy wasn't texting me back or we broke up, it was like literally feeling like I was going to die and knowing that what I was experiencing was an overreaction, but not understanding why. Right. Just like, I feel panicked and I don't know where this is coming from. Yeah. And this is not a realistic reaction. Like this is not normal. Before you got into recovery, did you know that? those were not normal reactions or were you, was it just kind of your reality? Well, that's what I drank over. Mm -hmm. That was the feeling that I drank and used drugs over. Right. Um, so no, but I mean, I no because I mean, I had that feeling when I was a kid and I went to therapy, but it wasn't like, it was never addressed that like that was trauma, you know, that was a trauma response. So so yeah, so it was through that re- relationship really was when things really got heightened for me. And um, I started seeing a therapist afterwards and she mentioned adult children of alcoholics, but she was just mentioning it because one of her other patients was in it. But she never suggested that I go. She also, and because I didn't think that I really, at that point in time, I didn't think that it had anything to do with my childhood. Yeah. I really didn't. Because well, we can get into that, but I didn't. And so tr- she never was able to identify either that what I had experienced in relationships was trauma either. And that's like such a common experience for us is that so many of us are in therapy for years and years and years. And the therapist isn't able to identify that what we're experiencing is trauma. Right. And so, yeah, so I didn't, that was the first time that I heard the term, but it wouldn't be until three years later that I was, that I would realize that like, yes, I knew that I was, a, I knew that I had grown up in an alcoholic family. I knew I was like a child of an alcoholic. 
With your mom, right? Yes, my mom. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know, like when she said the term like adult children of alcoholic, like I didn't know what it entailed until three years later. Like I didn't know about like the common characteristics or like the laundry list. Like I didn't know, I knew it meant like, oh, it's a program for people who grew up in an alcoholic home. Yeah. Um, Could you explain like the program of ACOA and like the laundry list a little bit? But like I so, but I didn't understand that there was like this character, these traits that were associated with it. Totally. Um, and and so, that you had like all of them. And that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so the term, the term was coined in the late seventies and the early eighties. And so for, it was a group of kids, teenagers that had been in Alateen. So if anybody doesn't know, probably everybody does. There's Al-Anon, which is the sister program for AA for the family members, um, spouses of, of, um, alcoholics. And then there's Alateens for the teenagers with alcoholic parents. And so this group of teens graduated. So they like became 18 and they went into Al-Anon and they realized that they couldn't really relate to what people were sharing. Mm -hmm. And so, because they were talking about their spouses or their kids, and they were trying to like overcome having just grown up and survived living in an alcoholic family. And now like they're trying to start their own life. And so they decided to start their own meeting that would be focused on adult children of alcoholics. And what they realized was that amongst them, regardless of what the specific details of their childhood looked like, that they had all of these common characteristics amongst them, which would later then become the laundry list. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you haven't read, put it in the show notes. Totally. If yeah, you haven't read it, it'll blow your mind. You'll shit your pants the first time you read it. <laughs> I but, did. Um, I'm all of them. It's insane. Here, like, so here are the most common characteristics. So, um, well, number one, and this is one I don't think I relate to, but fear of authority figures. Um, the big ones are like people pleasing, approval seeking, um, codependency, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, perfectionism. Um, unwarranted guilt, an overdeveloped sense of responsibility, uh, addiction to excitement. Now, initially, this was going to be addicted to fear, but they changed it to excitement. And this is kind of like being addicted to chaos, like, you know, getting involved in drama or um, like showing up late places or uh, not paying your bills on time or all of those things. Like we create excitement, aka fear. Because that's what we grew up in. Yeah. Right. It feels comfortable. That's what feels even comfortable. if it's, yeah. Comfortably it's uncomfortable. Familiar, not maybe comfortable, but it's familiar. But it is. It's, it's comfortably uncomfortable, I'd like to say. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, we confuse love and pity and tend to love those we can pity and rescue. Um, and then the big one for me was number 12. And when I read this, it was like, um, we are dependent personalities who are terrified of abandonment and will do anything to hold on to a relationship in order not to experience painful abandonment feelings, which we receive from living with sick people who are never there for us emotionally. And like, when I read that, it was like, fuck. Yep. This program might be for you if. Yes. Yeah. And so <clears throat> Everyone can obviously like go listen to the episode, but what it was, was like, I dated, it was, I dated Brian number one, uh, at seven (laughs) years sober. You guys have to go listen. She has, (laughs) she has a couple of different episodes on. Did you see that I I just saw him? No. What? What? Brian number one. 
Okay, yeah, you guys have to go back to, what is it, episode one, right? And why I'm never going to date a man named Brian ever again. (laughs) Yeah, I was in Austin. I had my retreat for my community. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Came over for dinner, I'll have to tell you. Okay, please do. It was epic! (laughs) I'm intrigued. I'm not epic. At least, what? At your adult child retreat, which the first episode you created was about him. Wow. Okay, that's full circle. I'll the details later. Okay, so, but so I dated him for less than a month. He ghosts me, and I feel like I'm gonna die, you know. And so it was through that experience, like this was so extreme because what was happening for me was like in each relationship, it was more painful from the last one, you know, because it was like layering on top of each other, right? Cause I didn't know what was going on with me. And so that pain was so extreme. And it was like through that, I had the first aha that like, there's no way I'm feeling right now is actually about this person. And number two, oh, this is actually the feeling that I felt as a child. Like, this is actually the feeling that made me want to sleep in my mom's bed every night. And this is the feeling that got me sent to therapy for the first time when I was nine years old. Uh-huh. This, this is that feeling. Did you know that before you had attended any ACOA stuff? I hadn't even attended yet. This is like, no, this was like, I still like, no, I just had kind of like this epiphany, like, holy shit, like that's what this feeling is. And then it was like a a couple months later that I went to an AA meeting and I heard a woman share about how when she was seven years sober, that she hit a bottom, like related to a romantic relationship in which she came to terms with the true impact that her childhood had on her. She mentioned the book. And so it was after that, that I went home, I read the book, I read the laundry list and my mind was blown. And, um, like long story short, like, I thought that like, she made a comment to me when I saw her the next week, like, Hey, that's great. You read this book, but like, this is going to take you like a shitload of work. Like this is going to take you like years and years and years of therapy. And, um, I don't think it was that I was resistant. I really just, I didn't, I still didn't grasp the severity of it of how much feeling yeah and I also don't think I fully grasped that it was trauma yeah um and I wouldn't really grasp that until I read Tion Dayton's book um the ACOA trauma syndrome which she really and I do too like she really views like being an adult child like it's you know it's it's suffering from PTSD from your childhood yeah and Um, people call like a CPTSD complex but like when you're experiencing relational trauma, like as a kid, even if it's little, like I didn't, and that's why I didn't think that it's had anything to do with my childhood because I didn't think that mine was that bad mm-hmm. because I was not like, yeah, I grew up with an alcoholic mom, but I was never like physically or sexually, you know, abu- even verbally, I was never even verbally abused, but, um, but, but you have to think about like what happens when it's relational trauma, when your brain is still developing. And the people that are supposed to be taking care of you, that are uh, responsible for your fucking survival, who are influencing how you how you think, yeah, how about you yourself, feel about yourself and about everybody else. Yeah. And so, like, that's a lot more. Like somebody like experiencing like emotional 
neglect or abuse as a kid, like over and over, even if on the surface, it doesn't seem that bad. Like the, the ramifications from that on a psychological level are so much more extreme. It's so interesting, the severity of like, sometimes when we think of trauma, we think of just the big T traumas that you're talking about. And we often just completely miss the small T traumas, which are so much more common. Almost every single person walking planet Earth has some form of small T traumas that they don't even are like, they're not even aware that that is trauma. And like I talk about in the last episode, like there are little T traumas that happen, like maybe being overly criticized by a parent or having a helicopter parent or just that that dismissiveness over your thoughts or feelings continuously throughout your childhood, just like not feeling heard or seen by parents. Those are all like little T traumas, um, but they rack up over time, you know, and at the same time, I mentioned the little T traumas are recognizing that other kids in other homes are receiving some form of love or attachment or whatever it is um, that you just don't have access to and realizing that you are not like that. Like that's another little T trauma is like, it's not just the bad things that happen to you, but it's the good things that don't happen to you. And there's also so many other factors that go into it to like, as far as like how much it's going to impact you too. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's so, you can't just take like two people who experience the same sort of abuse in childhood. Like they're not going to have the same, they're not going to have the same outcome. There's so many different things. Like, not just like, you know, like genetically too, but also, that, you know, like what else is, have you heard of, like, have you heard of pieces? Like, you know, there's ACEs, adverse mm-hmm. childhood experience, but then there's also the pieces, which is like positive childhood experiences. There's like seven of them. And like having more of those can really offset the impact of the adverse experiences. So, so having the good added in on top of like the not so good or the bad or whatever. Yeah. Like that, of- that's such a great segue to like, just remind the audience or just let them know that my sisters and I were on an episode of adult mm-hmm. child and we all three grew up in the same home with the same parents within X amount of years, you know, and like Kayla's two years older than me. Jack is five years younger than me. And we all have really different views and perspectives and feelings based on things that happened and didn't happen and all the things in our home, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Um, and so, yeah, so I, so I, when she told me that this was going to take years of therapy, I was just like, I'm just going to take a break for a year. I'll be fine. Um, <laughs> and I wasn't like, and then I dated another alcoholic named Brian, Brian number two. And it was like the most painful six months of my entire life. And it was fucking crazy. And mind you, like, I'm sober. Like, mind you, I'm in AA. Like, I had nine years sober when I was dating Brian number two. Right. And the amount of, like, shame. Um, it was fucking dark, man. It was way more painful than, like, the months leading up to me getting sober. Like, to go through that shit sober. Oh. Yeah. Like I said, it was the feeling that I drank over, but it was like, God, it showed me the power of like, what the fuck I was dealing with. Yeah. It's like gut wrenching grief that you're like, are confused about and don't know why it's there and don't know how to get out of it. And, um, but 
the, the other thing that I'll say too, is it's, I, I was not, I, as I said, I was not physically or sexually abused. We grew, you know, I grew up very privileged. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I just, I, I worry. I, the only reason why I ask is because, um, more often than not, I have listeners yeah. that say, you know, I wasn't abused as a child or my, neither of my parents even drink, you know? So like, I don't have a reason to be an addict or have issues with drugs or alcohol or whatever, you know, like I feel like still, um, what I hear from like clients or people in meetings who may be newcomers or um, are just starting a type of therapy, trying to figure out recovery, they make it so much more about like a moral failing that they, you know, like, I don't understand why I am this way, you know, why I can't just stop, you know, and it's like, that's why I want to have these big top conversations and these have these big talk topics where it's like, it's not a moral failing. Like if this isn't something that like, you're like not doing good enough at. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but well, exactly. I mean, with addiction, I mean, for me, the reason that I, that I felt that way was just because I didn't have, well, I mean, I, I saw it then, right? Like then I was able to see like, just because for years I thought this has got to be just something that I can fix or, you know, leading up to that, like taking breaks in relationships and feeling really good about myself. I didn't hop from one thing to the next. And I was like very high, like high self-esteem, high self-worth. And then I would get into new relationships and I, um, I would just be right back where I was. And so the experience with Brian number two showed me how this was just as powerful, actually more powerful than my alcoholism. Yeah. It's almost like your alcoholism was a symptom of your feelings 100%. about your trauma. It was. And that's why I truly believe like we're all kind of suffering from the same thing. It just manifests in different ways, you know? Um, and so, yeah. So then really like it was through that, that I really was able to grasp um, just how, how, how severely I had been traumatized and also to, to grasp these subconscious beliefs that were like, so, so deeply rooted in me like I said, I thought I would have told you like on the surface that I like loved myself and thought highly of myself, but deep down inside, I thought I was inherently flawed and unlovable. Totally. I relate super hard. Anybody who knew the drinking Mariah saw confidence, you know, and that there's a, there, there's truth behind it because I took myself through college, was teaching at college and got a master's degree when I was in an extreme act of addiction. So there's obviously some confidence there and like feeling like I can do the big hard things and I'm driven. And there's also like massive shit holding me back from even looking in the mirror. Well, the one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is about um, when you're not verbally abused, how it's really hard to identify what what those negative beliefs are because for a lot of people, they were told that they were a piece of shit. You know, for a lot of kids, they were told that they were stupid or, un, you know, all of those things. Mm -hmm. But my parents never said anything close to that. Right. You know, it was all um, subconscious messaging. Just like even just like the neglect piece, not being there in ways that you needed or whatever. You know, it's the removal well, of the good, not necessarily the adding of the bad. And the other thing too, that I, that impacted me was the fact that like at the age of 12, that's when I started to act out. 
And so from 12 to 19, it wasn't about my parents drinking and my mom or my mom drinking and my parents fighting. It was about me being a teenage derelict. Yes. That's the other thing is I want to talk about this term called scapegoat. You know, like what, what does that term even mean? If anybody's ever been um, like called the scapegoat, scapegoat, or you've been reading about it and not really sure what that means. Um, essentially how, how I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty nervous being the first person to jump into sobriety and recovery in my family. And to say the term sober, like that was unheard of in our family. And so in 2019, when I went to treatment, it was, I felt like the crazy person that like couldn't handle her alcohol or was making a big deal out of something. And I just felt embarrassed to even like feel like I had to talk about it. It was super strange. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that way when you started your podcast or like wanted to start to talk about it and didn't know how or? No, but, but, but you have to like, my situation is so different. Like in the sense that like, like I said, I've been talking about my shit for since I was like 12, mm-hmm. you know, like, no, I wasn't like, as far as like my identity's always been like, I've always been an alcoholic or like in recovery, you know, like I've been going to 12 step meetings since I've like was, was 13. And so that has always been a part of like my identity. Yeah. And because you got sober when? Well, at 19. Yep, yep. I mean, I, you know, I got sent to inpatient rehab for the first time at 14. And so, yeah, I'm very used to like talking about my stuff. Cause also too, like, I think I, like, I thought it made me cool as a teenager. Not that I thought it made me cool, but that's the route that I had to take like with my toxic shame. Like I kind of, the way that I dealt with it was like, I leaned into like my role, like, you know, that I was kind of this like fuck up. This troublemaker Um, kid in the family. Yeah. Yeah. And so, no, there was no, like, I didn't have any fear about, uh, that's why I was supposed to do this podcast because like, I'm not scared. I wasn't scared to put anything out there. Um, but as far as my parents went, you know, I, my mom, I didn't know how they would react. Um, my mom said, can you please not include us? And I said, I put a lot of thought into this, which I had and talked to my therapist about it a lot. Um, and I said, you know, I am going to talk about it, but I'm not going to like shit on you. You know, I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of like, this didn't start with you guys, like that this is like the disease of family dysfunction and that a loving family and a dysfunctional family are not mutually exclusive. I literally just shared about that at a meeting. I just shared about how like my family is one of the closest, most loving family oriented families ever. And I'm so grateful. And it's a hot fucking mess <laughs> and someone's got to fucking start speaking up in order to get through any of this healing that needs to happen because it's been generations of alcohol and abuse and wash, rinse, repeat. Like it's insane. Someone's got to do it. And I'm so grateful that my sisters and I are the generation that, that are doing it. So, But the, the other thing too, that I talk about a lot on my podcast as well, is that um, when that happens, like when somebody finally decides to, you know, speak the truth, about how then the rest of the family, you know, if you weren't, if you weren't already the scapegoat, I guess we're going to talk about scapegoat. Um, if you weren't already the scapegoat of the family, you often like become the scapegoat of the family. If you become the first person who's like, 
coming out of denial yeah, uh, about what's really going on. And so then the rest of the family like sees that as a threat and it's not, it's not conscious, you know, but it's like by that person identifying that they have a problem, well, then that, but, you know, that means that they have a problem as well, you know? Right. It's like, what are you hiding? You know, like it's, it's like you're comfortable in your chaos and everybody's staying quiet and silent and not saying anything. It's keeping the peace. It's the, everything that I'm saying, like, you know, fuck that too. And the entire family operates on that for generations. I talked about that a little bit on the first episode where I'm like, um, you know, I wasn't even, I was told to not speak to teachers or anybody else that may be able to help, you know? So when I was 26 and was being taken into a mental health hospital, you know, and my whole family was questioning, you know, what's up with Mariah? You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't know what's up with me either, but we got to start here. Yeah. Because by you getting help means that they need to get help. You know, I think that 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 was like a scary thing. You know, I could, I could feel it. The entire family kind of split, you know, there's a lot of anger. And I know that there's like a lot of resistance too. Like we won't go super into it, but like for right now, you know, just so the listeners are aware too, like I don't speak with my dad and there's like a lot of reason behind that too. And like me being willing to step forward and open up and be like willing to get honest with myself and figure out all the shit that I was stuck in or choosing to do. Like there's so much to my addiction story, you know, but being able to like move forward and get out of it and start to question like, hey, I don't think that this was normal <laughs> or like this is like, I don't know if this was healthy or okay that these things happened or didn't happen or whatever, you know, and it can be really threatening to someone who isn't ready to hear it or wanting to do the work to change themselves. Yeah. And the reason that we talk about it though, and what's important for people to realize is that it's not like, because we just are talking shit about our family. No, we have to talk about that in order to understand why we are the way that we are so that we can change. Yeah. And I, I know, I know like firsthand, I'm sure you have experience with this too. I think a lot of us that have ever been in addiction, when people that care about us or, or however it happens, someone tells us like, Hey, this isn't right. Like maybe you could go get some help or maybe you just could stop drinking as much or however that comes out, you know, it's like we get super defensive and we aren't wanting to hear it. Yeah. Until we're ready. Yeah. Well, I can't remember what role did you play? Were you more like the lost child? I don't even know the specific role label to put on myself. I just remember. And from my perspective, I feel like being the middle child, I felt like I was the one that was the peacemaker. You know, I was making sure that my mom was safe, staying out of my dad's way, not adding to the chaos and just trying to like blend in. I was kind of like the wallflower or I just, I just remember like picking up we had these plastic bags that had like extra toothbrushes and a change of clothes and stuff in them. And I was the one picking those up, grabbing the car keys, loading up the car, getting our family dog and like ushering people out to the car when it was safe to make our escape. Like that was kind of my role when things like hit, when shit hit the fan at home and we had to leave with my dad's drinking and his uh, anger, you know, but yeah, I guess I'm not really sure. I It's hard to not feel like I was a scapegoat when I went to Prairie. It felt really uncomfortable and really confusing. What uh, is that? Oh, that was the treatment? Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. So I went to like a local treatment center called Prairie St. John's. They're known for like, it's a mental health psychiatric hospital, but it's also um, substance use diagnosis. Uh Yeah. And so, yeah, that's where I went for treatment and just, it was the first ever in our family of someone like going to get professional help for mental health or, or especially drinking, like what the hell. Um, Yeah. It was just really odd. I definitely threw a wrench in the family plan. (laughs) Yeah. And I would think even more so where you live, it's probably a little, you know, behind the times some, you know, I, I would think that probably in a community like that, like, you know, therapy, addiction, like all that stuff, yeah. it's probably like still really taboo compared to other places. It is. It's actually like, it's so weird because I have felt since I've been in recovery, I've been, I've been in recovery for coming up on four years now. And since I've been like living this lifestyle and try to like figure out my place in the world, um, not being one of the drinkers here in Fargo, North Dakota, I feel like talking about sobriety or saying sober is more taboo (laughs) than being somebody at one of the craft bars, craft beer places or whatever. You know, it's like very weird to be somebody that isn't going to have a beer at a social gathering. How large is the population of Fargo? Um, I don't know. I think like last time that I looked like uh, I got to look it up. I was just curious. Yeah, it's definitely not large. It's a teeny tiny town. I was just wondering, like, how many, like, what's the lot? Like, well, you go to mostly yeah. any. I was, I was right. I was going to say about 130,000. So it says it was 126,700 in 2021. 126? Yeah. Huh. I wonder. Yeah, there's got to be, I wonder how many, like, well, you're in NA, right? You don't go to AA. Yeah. I mean, what are the largest meetings that you go to? Um, we have an awesome community, actually. I'm I'm obsessed with the recovery scene in Fargo. Yes, Fargo is like one of the most confusing cities to get sober in, especially with alcohol. Um, but the recovery scene that we have is phenomenal. It's so cool. I think the root of it too is like, yes, going through um a formality of like 12 steps or whatever type of program that you're working doing some structured uh, journaling and introspection and therapy and working with another person where you're speaking your truth to them and it's so important and we cannot ignore the deeper shit underneath the reason why we used you yeah. know like yes we're From using us. alcohol and drugs that can't be where that can't be like what you focus on when you're looking to heal long-term, you got to dig deep into this trauma that we're speaking of this generational work. Yeah. And I don't, the, the 12 steps were not designed to heal trauma. You know, Mm -hmm. that's important for people to know too. Um, I think that like, it's impossible to deal with your childhood until you get sober. Like if you're an addict, you're not going to be able to work through that stuff in active addiction. Right. Well, you're not present. You're not staying present with yourself or in your life at all. But it's, um, this, this stuff is really painful, you know, and it's hard, it's hard to try to dig into this stuff when you're brand new into sobriety, you know, you have to kind of have some footing. Right. I know for me, it was like, I mean, painful is like absolutely the word for it. And it's also really intriguing. You know, I've always been a curious person by nature and just like, you know, wanting to know more and more about 
some of the answers, you know, especially the answers about who I am and the way that I tick and why. And so getting curious about it and starting to ask the reasons why behind your use or behind your parents' behavior or like whatever your family dynamics look like, you know, not all of us had two parents and, and, you know, maybe some of us didn't even have alcoholism in front of us or addiction of any form, but here we are wondering like how we can start to heal. When was your, when did you have the realization that you had experienced trauma? Um, gosh, I have no idea. I guess probably my freshman year of college. I remember taking myself to, we had like a, I think we got, we got free counseling as a student on campus. And so I took myself there, but I also remember, I remember her telling me about this codependent no more book um, <laughs> by Emily, uh, Melody Beattie. And I remember having it in my hands and I never opened it. And I lied to that counselor almost the whole time. The one truth that I, that I did tell was that my little sister was at home experiencing um, home life <laughs> as it is without me now. And that I was like a scared for her and my mom and just worried for their lives and their lifestyles and everything. And just like them. And I don't know, I was worried. And so I, I voiced that and I quit counseling shortly after that because she didn't really announce to me that she was a mandated reporter and was, would be sending CPS to my, to my, my mom and dad's home to go check on my little sister. And it really caused a lot more trouble mm. than it helped. Um, mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. sucked. I didn't know that, that was going to happen. And so I didn't even have time to like call my mom and like warn her or like do anything on my end, which again, it's not my fault. It's not my job to like jump in. But yeah, that was really hard to process. I felt like I did something extremely wrong by speaking up and telling somebody. What um does your mom know about the podcast? My mom knows about my podcast. Uh, I don't know if she's listened. Um, I haven't exactly like sent her the link for her to listen, but I hope that does if she, she know like what she knows the concept. Yes. Yeah. And she's very familiar with my recovery and what I'm doing. You know, I think she's supportive of me healing and my sister's healing because we're all kind of on a really similar journey, you know, and if you guys are interested, you can like go listen to the adult child episode where it's, I don't know what it's called, like a dysfunctional family trauma. And it's the three sisters, but the three sisters, but yeah, I think like my mom has been around our healing talk enough now for the last three years, at least where, um, she recognizes, and I hope that she understands to her core that it's not us picking on her or my dad or anything. It's it's us navigating through our feelings and our experiences and trying to heal through it without like, we're not, like you said, like you're not shitting on your parents by telling your truth. Yeah. yeah and mine have been actually like surprisingly so supportive. Really? And oh, do the, yours yeah. listen to adult child? No, they don't. I mean, they I, th- I think they've listened to like, you know, a little, I know my mom's listened to like some of it, maybe my dad, but like get the gist of what you're doing. But yeah. And um, they're so proud of me. And it's really because I mean, they're both in horrible active alcoholics. Like it's like it's the alcoholism has progressed so, so much worse to when, when I was a kid, really? you know, it was, Yeah. It was like once I got sober, then their diseases picked back up. And I wouldn't consider my dad to be an alcoholic prior to, but maybe in the last 10 years, like for sure he is. And they just have like the sickest, just toxic 
relationship. Like they, they love each other. Um, they're not like a miserable couple that just like is together and they can't stand each other. They, they do love each other, but they are just, they're killing, you know, they're killing each other. Right. It's enabling. And it's really, and it's really fucking sad, you know? And, uh, you know, just in October, like my mom fell downstairs and broke her heel and all sorts of stuff. And, um, and it's really disturbing. Um, but in spite of that, like they're, they're really proud of what I'm doing. And, um, can you, there's a, there's like a part of me that knows, like, they know what the deal is. Like, maybe we won't say it out loud, but like, you know, deep down inside, like we're all aware, like they're aware that, you know, like the reality of our situation, you know, and that they're sick and alcoholics and I'm the one that's sober. And, um, and because of that, that like, I'm, I'm saving, I'm saving a lot of lives, you know, when they're drinking or otherwise, do they ever like make remarks like, Oh, well, you could just cause Andrea is better than us. Or like, do they do anything like that? There's, uh, there's been like, there's been, yeah, my mom. Yeah. There, like there has, um, but only when, um, cause what I, uh, talked about earlier about how they'll, you know, like they'll lash out, which they did to me. Like when I first, when I first started working on, when I entered adult child recovery, like they were both, especially my dad, like nasty to me. Um, because I stopped participating in the way that I once did, like probably very similar to you and your sisters, you know? Yeah. And, um, and especially with my dad, you know, he got really, really vicious and he, you know, intentionally tried, has tried to hurt me, you know, like to punish me. Like I, I probably have told you this story before, but it was, I don't know how many years ago it was now, like maybe, uh, six or six years, eight years ago. Um, there was this incident where, you know, I did, I was, what I like to say is that I, I don't ignore the elephant in the room, but I don't try to carry the elephant out of the room. So like, I'm going to like acknowledge what's like going on in the family, but I'm not going to like go and like meddle and, and try to like fix stuff. But I'm, but because also part of the disease is denial, right? So I'm not going like, to live in the denial. Just like announce that you're like aware of something. Yeah. Like I'll call stuff up if it's appropriate, you know, and it was, and it was like a fucked up situation. And I kind of, you know, stated the reality of the situation and not, neither one of them wanted to hear that. And so then overnight, like I got a text the following morning, um, of them telling me that they had changed the locks on all of the doors at one of their, their house in Lake Tahoe and that I was no longer welcome there anymore. Why was that? That's weird. Out of the blue. They were, no, because, because they were trying to punish me. Cause it was, I, I, had just, I just had called them out. Yeah. Okay. But well, that, that doesn't say anything about like why you're, why you are unsafe to have at the house. Well, anything. that's what, it, but that's what I'm saying. It's punished. Like they're trying to punish me Yeah. because what they do is I was that scapegoat role for so long. I was the problem. I was the identified patient. And so they do whatever they can to like, keep me in that role, you know? And actually one of the ways that they did that too was Prior to that, there was, there was five years where I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to go there. 
And I was already like, I don't know, six years sober, very responsible. This house sits empty half the year. You know, I'm responsible. I'm all these things. And my dad would not let me have a key. Um, I wasn't allowed to go to the house. And that was like so hurtful. You know, it's so fucking hurtful. But it's like part of it is control. Uh, part of it is like my dad's possession, like money is his higher power, like his things are, is his higher power. And then also like viewing me as this irresponsible teenager that I once was. And so that was like, so then finally I fucking got the key, like after, I don't know, qu- quite a long time. Um, Are you going to like trash the place? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. And, and the weirdest part about it was like, but I was, but I was allowed to stay at their house in Florida. Like I was like, I was allowed to have a cookie to the house in Florida. But I wasn't allowed to have a key to the place in Tahoe. Um, but so, but yeah, so that's what it was. So it was like that they were trying to punish me. They're like, you know, I was calling them out and then they were trying to spin it and make me the problem. And that actually might have been a situation like where you know, maybe my dad made a comment about me being all high and mighty, you know, but like literally overnight had all of the locks change on like a huge house yeah, just to try to hurt me. And I so, know. go ahead. I know like a lot of, a lot of people who's, who I've heard share their story, especially coming from bigger families. Like I know that you're an only child, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and, um, but she's our family is pretty small. Like I, it's just my sisters and I really, um, is anybody, like, you know, like our, our usual family gatherings and stuff is myself. And then we have three cousins, you know, that we meet up with for holidays and stuff, but it's small. And so I don't even have any of that. Like I don't have siblings. Um, we never, I have two first cousins, but we, I don't have a relationship with either of them. Um, there's no like relationship really with aunts and uncles. And it was just me. And I know we hear a lot of like the pain of other people's stories of like, I have all of this family that's still actively out there using, selling, whatever it is, and to remove yourself from that and choose to heal yourself in some way, shape or form when the rest of your family is literally either shitting on you for doing so, not supporting you or just like is in their own world and in their own addiction to the point where like you have to remove yourself from everything that you're familiar with in order to heal. Like it just it makes it that much more difficult. It's, it's really hard to watch, but. And I also, well, for me, I just shared with you that I'm starting to go to debtors anonymous, like part of it. I I think I'm still kind of, I'm still kind of participating in it in a way because my parents still partially support me. Mm. And I think it's like this. And I want to so desperately be to be free, you know? But I think that there is this like, um, it's keeping me in a child role, you know, and it's keeping me connected to that. Like it's a subconscious way that I'm like connecting with them. Especially with like these punitive things in your history with them being like, if you don't follow our rules, we will take away this or not let you this. Like, Mm -hmm. You but know? part of it is me putting myself in that role to an extent, you know, like staying in that scapegoat role too, where I need their help, like that I can't, you know, support myself. I really, 
I relate a lot. I have my parents paying one of my, one of my, um, college, um, loans, you know, my student loans right now. And it's been really insane. You know, after Christmas, um, I will definitely talk about this on an, on an episode here, telling more about my story, but Christmas, um, two years ago was when so much shit hit the fan with my family. Um, and the day that my sisters and I stopped communicating with my dad, um, that was very shortly after that. I just said, you know, I know that I'm on your phone plan and thank you so much um, for giving me like a cheaper bill every month and everything like that. However, uh, no, <laughs> I have to figure out a way to pay a higher bill and get myself on my own phone plan because that was part of my traumas too. Like there was this point, I remember being 20 years old. I wasn't old enough to be on the party bus, but I was. And my dad had tried to, he was drunk and tried to call every single one of us and nobody was answering his phone calls. Um, because why would you answer when he's drinking to that level? And so none of us did. And he went and turned off our phones. Mm. And so we couldn't even be in communication with each other. Like I couldn't even call my mom and like ask what was up. And like the abuse was really bad then, you know? And so it was like a really scary time to just be like, where is my family? Where are my sisters? Like, where's my little sister? She was 15 at the time. And yeah. Mm. That was finally, I mean, but then again, for years after that, that was when I was 20 years old. And it wasn't until I was 29 years old that I finally was like, I have to do the scary thing and get myself off of this phone plan. So there cannot be any more like walking on eggshells, trying to please dad just in case, you know, what if I mess up or don't follow his instruction and he turns off my phone and I'm damn near 30 years old. Like that's insane. But I totally relate to being in that like kid role, you know, I'm just feeling like I had no other way to do it, but clearly there's another way. Like I did it. I pulled some strings and I got a phone plan and it wasn't that hard, you know? Yeah, exactly. It, it just took a really long time. Like I didn't, I talked myself out of it for years because of financial insecurity fears. Huge. I know. Yeah. I am. Um, I just had an epiphany in the last few days about it and how the the relate the money stuff and the relationship stuff is just so 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 connected and um i think that there is a part of me that thinks that i can't take care of myself you know like there's a part of me that thinks um you know i i need i need somebody to save me uh financially and in all the ways that like of my on my own of my own accord like I can't take care of myself or live the life that I want to live yep and that yep. the relationship is is that like is going to be the key to that I even have fear though I, I think that same thing being an adult child weird how I relate to you on that <laughs> and at the same time I'm like the biggest fear of mine is getting into a relationship where a lot of these things are provided for me. Um, and, you know, as women, I think like, uh, well, and definitely growing up in the home that I grew up in where my mom didn't work outside the home was very controlled by my dad and the finances that he was very clear that he made the finances and that she was using them because he was letting her like it was very, very clear. And so I think about that sometimes, like being in a marriage in the future and like my husband being the main provider, you know, like if that were to be a thing, how do I ever feel safe in that situation? Like it just, I have so much stuff that I haven't even like attempted to start to 
work through in therapy, but um, I am for sure that I'm so much more comfortable right now, even if it's like, even if it's like, call it toxic, I don't fucking care. I am right now, I am much more comfortable being independent, like financially and like all the ways, like I really like to practice knowing that I can take care of myself. But yeah, it was interesting in my home because, you know, my mom had work, she worked in finance, but then when she had me, she decided to stay home. Um, but my mom always like the, she, she portrayed and, you know, gave the message of like, women can take care of themselves and women can, you know, she was an in- independent woman, you know, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> But so that, so that message, like that, that was what she, um, like said verbally, but then like subconsciously is I watched her like stay married to my, and even though she was the alcoholic, my dad was like the fucking asshole. Like, and I would have drank if I was married to him too, you know, Mm -hmm. but I saw she stayed right. Like she stayed with him and also too, it wasn't like, you'll hear about women whose heads are buried in the sand. Like they have no idea about their finances, you know, like, but, but my mom did all the, she took care of all the personal finances. Same with my mom. You know? That's so weird. He like made the money and she like managed it. And, and everything was like on a budget. They were like hyper, 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 hyper fiscally responsible. Like, and that was the two things. It was money and alcohol as a kid. And I would sit on the steps and it would be them either fighting about my mom's drinking or like my dad all upset about like a very like meaningless amount of money. Mm. And they always preached, you know, financial responsibility that you save, that you don't live beyond your means, like all of those things. But at the same time, my mom, like I had a clothing allowance and she would constantly like let me go in, in the red. Like I got X amount each month. And she would constantly like, let me dip into the next month. And then like when I would have summer jobs, I would ask for her, like ask for the money that I was going to be getting like weeks in advance, have her like front me the, my paycheck and then like hand it to her right when I like got it. And so then that would taught me to spend money that I didn't have. Yeah. Yeah. Super manageable. That makes sense. I mean, that was, that's part of my story too. You know, I just feel like your, your story is so similar to mine, like as many of us who are needing recovery. Right. But yeah. like, these are things that I'll be talking on more and more in the podcast, but it's, that's still one of my biggest things that I haven't even really scratched the surface on my financial debt and the plate, like the situation that I got myself in throughout all of my adult years from like the minute I went to like college at 18 years old to still today. Like I'm still like spinning my wheels trying to figure out finances and figure out what that even looks like because that definitely was not taught to me. It was to me, but it didn't do much luck. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like it wasn't really taught to you though. I mean, yeah, like yeah. because you were you were kind of like able to do what you wanted. Mm-hmm. And okay. I also became an accountant too. So, <laughs> well, yeah. tell me how your recovery is like changed since you've decided to I mean I love you're one of my fuck small talk humans like you're one of the people that I ran this title by so many times and I want to say that I think I I think I was the nail in the coffin for you to like use fuck yeah like you're the one that's like fucking go for it (laughs) yeah I think I yeah 
I think it's your your um you're hesitant. I remember just go fucking go for it. Of course. And I think you just said it in that tone too. Like, what the fuck are you waiting for? <laughs> fucking get out there. <laughs> um, okay, so continue. What was the um, question? Just yeah, like your recovery, I am assuming has changed a lot since you've decided to just say like, you know, fuck that I'm not going to be quiet. And I actually want to have my voice on a platform educating people about what it means to be an adult child. Like how has, how has having this platform and blowing up, like it's insane. You on TikTok, you on Insta, like your numbers are huge. Like the downloads, it's awesome. How has the feeling of your recovery and being an adult child changed since having your community? Like you built it yourself. Yeah. It's, it's so amazing, but I'm not able to tap into that feeling as much as I'd like to. Into your own feeling of recovery? No, into like really fully embracing um, all that I've accomplished in the past two years, like really letting like the good feelings like sink in. Like it's it's difficult for me to like fully um honor that in a way and it's been amazing but it's also been like really fucking hard it's like so scary um and it's it's what's how is my recovery changed like i now have this group of people who fucking get what i'm going through Exactly. You know, and I, I just went through a really, really, really difficult time, like in the past few months and like all this trauma coming back, like emotional flashbacks. It was, it was all the same feelings with like Brian number two and thank God it didn't last, but it was so, 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 so scary. Like to be feeling that way again at this point in your recovery. Yeah. Yes. It was like, what the, like, I, it was like, people talk about, I don't have another recovery in me. Like, that's how I felt. I was like, I do not have, I, I cannot go through this again. Like I cannot go through this. And, um, but it's so amazing because now I've been given this support system that can, can walk me, hold space for me, you know? as I'm going through this, because in the past, yeah, I had friends, but I didn't have people that like really, really understood it. Mm -hmm. You know? I mean, you come forward as like the host of adult child. People know what you're about. Like they kind of, yeah. 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 And so, yeah, I'm having, you know, I have this, this community of people who, who know exactly how I feel. And they found you because of that. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really crazy experience to be on the phone with somebody like I'm freaking out. They're talking me off the ledge. And it's like, this is a stranger that I like just, I like dated two alcoholics named Brian. And then eventually, then I just started this podcast <laughs> and then this random person found the podcast and now I'm on the phone with them and they're <laughs> talking me through my shit. Isn't that crazy? It's so weird. One of your recent episodes was like the power of connection and community. And absolutely. Like that's my mantra. Find a community, find a connection. And for me, I've seen your community grow. It's, I can't even explain how inspiring it is to me. Like, I know it's not perfect. Healing isn't linear. I'm so sorry to hear that things have been so fucking rough lately. Just like healing is shitty. Life is hard and it's really beautiful. And it's like fantastic at the same time. But um, knowing that I can build a community, like I want 
I want a place that feels safe. And so if I'm not finding it, I'm going to create it. That's the point I beat is like those feelings, like tapping into like the gravity of that. What I just said, you know, about being on the phone, like those are the feelings that I wish I could tap into more, you know? Yeah. And it happened um, weeks ago when I, when I was telling you about the member who tried to, who created his own community behind his back. Yeah. And, um, but so when, when that happened, I, you know, I, we had group and I was really devastated and. That he was kind of going behind your back and kind of trying to. Yeah. Like he was betrayed. Like I had just found out about it. Like he. Betray your community and make his own. And so, so we had, you know, a group and I told them, you know, what was going on. Most of them, many people I had told and told them already, but, um, they fucking showed up for me. You know, it's, I've never felt in my entire life that like people have been behind my back in this way. Like never, I've never felt so supported and unconditionally loved and accepted. You know, I was like bawling at the end of the meeting and, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's quite profound. I'm so excited to just see where else it goes. I mean, creating the adult child pod and like the community, the Patreon that you have. Um, I'll have it in my show notes and everything. So everybody, please go check out the Adult Child Podcast. It's been a huge part of my recovery, a huge part of my friendship circle and just everything that that I do um, to keep myself sane <laughs> and to keep myself feeling like I am part of that community too. It's been so beautiful. So I'm just so grateful that you've been here today. You're doing it. You're doing it. And you're going to have to like coach me through some questions that I have about podcasting and how to be a rock star at it. So. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for being here. Fuck Small Talk is produced in partnership with Be Easy Marketing. It would mean so much if you took the time right now to follow the pod and give a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'll see you guys here next week for another Big Talk topic. Until then, let's keep moving forward.